Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and we're well into Season 2 of our Fallout role-playing game campaign. So grab your notepad and follow along as we build another scenario for our group of Wasteland Survivors. And if you still need a Fallout game book, check out your local game or bookstore, or hit up the Modiphius Entertainment website. That's M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. All right, before we get into anything else today, I wanted to apologize for there not being a new episode last week. I mentioned that issue when I dropped the notice about that, so I'm really not going to expand on it here. I did want to thank everybody who reached out, and I can assure you I'm doing much better this week. And as I promised in last week's announcements, you're getting two episodes this week, unless you're listening to this on the YouTube channel, in which case you're only getting one show, because I'm keeping us on our regular rotation, and I am sorry about that. But... I am cooking up a couple of YouTube exclusives that should be up by Monday morning, so hopefully that'll make up for it. Now, let's get on with the show. And as you know by now, we can't build new stuff until we cover what we built two weeks ago. This isn't going to take very long. Two weeks ago, we finally had our group head to Ladue to take out the facility Tucker Malloy and Jackson Denman had been rumored to be hiding out in, and where they were also rumored to be creating a weapon to use against the group. It turned out that both of those things were true, though they didn't get to kill either Malloy or Denman, and the nuke they saw had actually been filled with confetti. They heard a female's voice informing them that she'd taken care of the two men, and they were able to confirm this after the message by checking a closet in the laboratory of the abandoned vault the men had holed up in. The voice also made it clear that so long as the group didn't come after her, she wouldn't be coming after them. Afterwards, the group took a moment to celebrate their victory and began to wonder what their next step would be. Now, before we start building this week, I do need to note something. I got several emails after the show two weeks ago, noting that the way we wrapped that up sure as heck felt like the end of a campaign. Now, that wasn't my intention, but if you and or your group has had enough fallout for now and you'd like to either end it or pause it to play something else, that would be a good point to do so. I'd still level the characters up as we wrote it, and I'd leave it with the ending we wrote as well, because your group would be heading back to their base of operations to discuss what's happening next. It is a bit neat and tidy, but I think sometimes we like neat and tidy for our wrap-ups. Like I said then, though, we're not done with our campaign. Like I said, though, we're not done with our campaign. The idea from here is to wrap up Act 2, throw a few nuggets in there for the start of Act 3, and then in a couple of weeks, start Act 3. So I've kind of explained it, but you know what? The heck with it. Let's just go ahead and build. We'll pick up a few days after the end of the last session in game time. The group should be relaxing a bit and healing up from the combats they've been in recently. This would also be a good time for them to upgrade weapons and armor, as well as work on chemicals and any other creative things they'd like to do. If they've got the power armor from the Garson base, it's probably going to need to be repaired, since the last combat should have torn things up pretty badly. They'll also have time to shop for gear and ammo, so if you want to run them through that, please do so. Now I said all of that to say this. The group should be healthy, well-rested, well-equipped, and ready for some action. And that action is on the way. Mackenzie Cook will approach the group one morning. She doesn't have her dog with her, and she's not in a very good mood. 
The group should offer to let her inside if they're in their base of operations, but if they don't or they don't think of it, so long as they're meeting in a semi-private spot, all is good. She'll report she's had several run-ins with a group of raiders who've crossed the Mississippi River to raid across the northern part of the city. She's exchanged shots with them numerous times, and the various raider gangs and other security teams up there have as well. There have been a number of deaths and thousands of caps worth of items and materials stolen. She also reports that during the most recent incident, her beloved dog was killed in the crossfire. Now, she's there to ask for the group's help. She notes that she's way underpowered and way outnumbered in this case, and the Missouri Patrol has agreed to only work within the state boundaries, and crossing the river technically doesn't fall within that. It can be argued that following the raiders across the river because of the attacks on this side would be okay, but the fact that she doesn't have the manpower or the firepower to go after them is definitely a legit reason. And yes, she is openly upset and angry about the death of her dog, specifically because, in her words, when they couldn't drop me, they targeted him. Poor boy never stood a chance. Now, I'm smart enough to know that a lot of groups won't jump on the emotional thread we're laying out here, so if that's not enough to get them motivated, she'll offer a thousand caps for the resolution. And she doesn't care how they resolve it, she just wants the situation resolved. She doesn't have much to give the group in the way of intel on the raider group, but what she can tell them is the only way to cross the river into the city is across the old McKinley Bridge, which is on the north side of the city, and it ends in the old city of Venice on the Illinois side. She's aware of the basic layout of that side of the river these days, and notes that pretty much the only thing that survived was the old steel mill in Granite City, so her bet would be that this group bases themselves out of there. If the group declines this offer, she's not going to push. It will be obvious she's disappointed, but she'll thank them for their time and leave. If that's the case, we really don't have anything else for them to do this time around, so you'd have to either use something we've created previously but they didn't do, or come up with a side quest of your own to send them on. But come on, we know our groups. They're going to jump on this. They'll probably want to try to get some more intel on the Illinois side of the river. Chances are good that none of them have ever been over there, so they'll need to reach out and try to figure out what's what. Victor may be an option, or they can use any of their other contacts. Regardless of who they check in with, they really can't get any more information than what Mackenzie Cook could give them. The reason for that, and you can decide whether you want to share this with the group or how much you want to share, is that none of their contacts do business on that side of the river, and that's mostly because there's not a whole lot of anything on that side until you get around the Springfield area. So, basically, there's no money in it. That means the group is going to need to formulate a plan of their own, especially when they consider the fact that if there's not a lot of business going on over there, that usually means there's not a whole lot of people out there to deal with the various creatures that tend to roam free. They also need to decide when they want to make their way across the river. They can figure pretty easily that they can make the walk from Diamond Pass to the steel mill in about two and a half hours. And that would be, by the way, if they don't run into anything along the way. So depending on the time of day or the mood of your group, they might decide to get up early the next day and hoof it on over there. Or they might decide they want to leave immediately and plan on searching for a place to camp out if need be. And between you and me, regardless of when they want to go, they're probably going to have to camp out. So just be ready for that. 
The trip through the north side of the city will be uneventful, though we should be pointing out that it's almost too quiet. They'll come across the bodies of some dead raiders as they move along, and it'll be obvious from the state of the bodies that it's been several days since they died, which would match up with Cook's report from earlier. Now that brings us to crossing the McKinley Bridge. Now, if you've played any Fallout video game, you know that bridges in the game aren't very good. I mean, it does make sense. Numerous bridges were either severely damaged or flat out destroyed in the bombing. But there were a few bridges that survived the bombings with a minimal amount of damage. That being said, we also know they've degraded badly since there really isn't anyone out there taking care of the roads and bridges. What complicates the issue with the McKinley Bridge is that when you drive onto it in the real world, you start by going onto a ramp that leads over the riverfront and across the bridge. And without the ramp, getting onto the bridge would be practically impossible. So we have to finagle this to keep the ramp together in some way, shape, or form so we can use that bridge. The ramp and the bridge are both two lanes, so you've got a lane going east and one going west. Let's just set it up with some big holes in the ramp in various places, as well as the bridge, and note it in great detail, pointing out that they can see where the rebar can be seen and that the concrete on the edges looks worn. Give them the impression the rest of the bridge can fail at any point, which would be death due to the drop. Maybe even have the wind start to blow, which is really going to make the bridge creak. The other side of the bridge runs into actual land when it ends with no ramp. The road slopes down to a curve, so the group will come out on the old Illinois Route 3 in Venice. There's an old power substation that they can see off to the north and an old park to the south. Otherwise, there's a lot of old vegetation, and while some of it does seem to be fairly new, it's just got that creepy vibe. But they're not going to get much time to check out the scenery before the shots ring out. Have a shot for each member of the group plus two. And no, they don't hit. And before we continue on that point, I need to lay out what we've got going here. I hinted a while back that we'd be bringing the Scorched to our game from Fallout 76. Regardless of what else I think of that game, which that it absolutely sucks, I liked a couple of things about it, and the Scorched are at the top of that list. So what exactly are the Scorched? They're a variation on the feral ghoul. There's a big difference, though. They've managed to retain some of their basic intelligence as they can use weapons effectively. That means we've got to either build a Scorched from scratch or modify the Feral Ghoul. I'm lazy by my very nature, so we're going to modify the Feral Ghoul stats on page 355 and 356. Here are the changes we're making. Give them a 3 in guns, change their total health points to 10, and raise their initiative to 11. Of course, that means we need to give them a gun. I think the combat rifle would be appropriate. The damage on one is five dice, and the rest of the stats you need are on the small guns chart on page 95. That also means we need to give them an attack, so it'll be body plus guns, which leaves the target number at eight. One more thing here, while the Scorched can use weapons, there's some argument as to whether or not they can actually reload them. I've played Fallout 76 a couple of times, and I don't think I've ever seen them do it. So whatever's in the magazine is all they've got to shoot. Once it's gone, they're going to swing the rifle like a club. We'll say the mag holds 15 rounds, and that's 45 caliber ammo. Now that's it, so let's get back to the build. Once the shots have been fired, we're into combat. 
run it as you usually would, and note we're using two more than the total number of your group members. That'll probably make it a cakewalk for your group, but since it's the first time we're using them, I'd rather underdo it than overdo it. When it's done, they can start heading towards the steel mill. They're going to need to follow Route 3 for a couple of miles north, but they'll eventually have to cut east in order to get to the mill. And in our time, there are several opportunities to turn onto roads that will lead them that way. However, to keep this simple, I'm going to run this out one way. There's a point about two miles up the road where they'll be able to look to the east and actually see the mill. It's about a mile, mile and a half away from them, but it is a straight shot. So this is going to be where they're going to turn to head that way. Now, I had considered dropping an encounter in here, but what's coming made me think a little better of it. That being said, if you're interested in putting another challenge in here, toss some more Scorched in. I wouldn't go more than one per group member, but hey, you add as many as you would like. The reason for not putting more in here is because a couple of hundred yards down the road, there's an old firehouse to the left and a couple of abandoned houses to the right. The group will have the advantage of hearing it before they see it, and it's going to be a pair of Yao Guai, and they are hungry. This is going to be an unavoidable fight, even though they might decide to run. And while we've had Yao Guai in here before, they were an option, not a requirement. At this point in the campaign, the group's a high enough level to be able to handle them, in theory anyway, and the stats for Yao Guai are on page 354. The group will lick their wounds before heading on, obviously. About a quarter mile further down the road, they run into a bit of an issue. In our time, there's a bypass overpass over multiple sets of train tracks. The reason for that is that there are multiple factories or plants in the immediate area, and trains are almost constantly running through. But thanks to the bombs and the destruction, that overpass bridge fell. Not only that, there are overturned boxcars all over the place. The group can get down to the track level without too much issue, and they will realize they can get up to the other side without much issue. The issue is that they need to get across the tracks to get to the other side. That's where the fun begins. Let's just go with regular old feral ghouls here, since we've already shot at them and tossed Yao Guai at them. Put double the number of the group in, and the stats are on page 355 and 356, and just sprinkle them into the scene however you'd like. Moving along, once the group gets up the slope, they've only got about eight blocks to get to the steel mill, and they get the true picture of just how much damage got done in this area. It's pretty obvious the steel mill was the target, but it's the downtown area of the city that took the brunt of the damage. There aren't any buildings left standing, just piles of rubble. And as they get closer to the mill, they realize it took a ton of damage as well. Of the half dozen or so buildings that comprise the complex, only one remains standing. When they get there, they realize even that building didn't come away unscathed, but since it was the main building, there was enough left for a group to use it as its headquarters. Now, the group is going to be surprised to notice at distance that there's nobody outside the building. When they get close enough, which would be a couple of hundred yards or less, it'll become obvious why. They hear gunfire from inside the building. Approaching, they can peek inside. There's no need to be too sneaky about it, though they do want to be careful. Here's what they see. The inside of the mill doesn't look anything like it did when it was running. All of the catwalks and spaces above the mill floor are gone, and they can see some of the beams and rails just hanging broken. 
There's plenty of floor space, though, as it's about 20 yards by 10 yards. And while there's a bunch of rubble, it's obvious it's been cleaned up and arranged in a semi-tactical way. What makes that obvious is that there's about two dozen raiders in tactical positions firing on about three dozen super mutants. That leaves the group with a quandary. Jump into the fray and take their chances, or wait to see who's left standing when the battle ends and take them on. And let's be real here. They're going to wait the battle out and take on whatever's left. And by the way, that's going to wind up being a dozen of the super mutants. They're all super mutant brutes, and those stats are on page 368. And unlike the Raiders, the Super Mutants aren't going to use the cover. They'll move around, but they're not ducking under or behind anything. So when this is done, the group can pick their way through and see what's up. For the record, there were a half a dozen Raider Scavers, stats on page 389, and a half a dozen Raider Veterans, stats on page 390. I include those for when your group scavenges the stuff off of them. What they're probably going to be most interested in are the crates they've got on the far side of the building. They've got somewhere in the area of 50 crates, though pretty much all of them are empty. Some of them are marked Garson Tactical, some are marked Jessup Chemicals, and some are marked iRobotics. There's a stack of them that's really going to draw the group's attention as they're marked with the symbol Victor uses to mark his crates with. And the number of crates matches the number of crates stolen from his facility earlier. There's also a half dozen crates with no name on them, and when they check them, it's obvious they once held chemicals of some sort, though what kind and how much, they're not certain about. They also find a holotape. When they go to listen, the same female voice they heard back in the bunker speaks. My people have given you everything you've needed to secure your base of operations. That being said, your continued raiding of the northern part of the city has drawn attention to you that I cannot allow to continue because it will eventually draw attention to my organization, and we can't have that. And the chemicals you stole from me have a purpose that your animal brain cannot begin to fathom. So consider this to be the end of our arrangement. Now what the group should be getting from this is the woman, who they might have figured out by now is Jessica Denman, was using the Raiders for something, but has apparently decided they're no longer worth it. And the chemicals should concern them as well, but they don't have anybody they can connect those with right now. That's going to make it time to leave, but by now the sun's starting to set. That leaves the group with a choice, camp out here or somewhere near here, or try to get back to the city in the dark. The smart move is going to be to camp here, and we're going to start with that. They can easily move things around to give themselves a bunch of cover, and we'll give them the evening without an encounter, because we're just nice guys like that. If they decide to head on back, let's give them three encounters. A half a dozen Scorched would be the first, ten Feral Ghouls would be the second, and six Mutant Hounds. Stats for those would be on page 349, and that would be the last encounter. Now, if we're going to be fair, they're going to also have these three encounters if they choose the head back in the morning option. So set them up regardless. Now, they might choose to go directly back to Victor, but they really should probably head to Mackenzie Cook. She's given them her location and she'll actually be there when they get there. She thanks them for taking care of the issue and will look into any of the information they provide. In the middle of the conversation, Bruno arrives with a box with no lid. He says to her, Mr. Victor heard about your companion. He wanted me to tell you that he realizes it might be too soon, but he wanted me to bring you this little girl as a token of his appreciation for what you do. 
Inside the box is a puppy, jet black, wide-eyed, and very rambunctious. Cook smiles when she sees it, thanks Bruno, and thanks the group. Now, if they do choose to head back to Victor, he'll explain he did what he did because one can never have enough friends. He'll also agree to look into everything the group found during their trip across the river. So, the group has accomplished yet another mission and can head back to their base of operations. And that's where we're going to bring the build to a close. But I'm not done with the program today. My group finally got a session in two weeks ago, so we need to recap it. And I know I'd usually do a recap of what we did the time out before that, but I got to be honest, it's been so long, I don't even remember anymore and didn't feel like going back to my notes. So let's just discuss the session we played. We began with the group deciding they wanted to head to iRobotics to look into who has been building the synths that had been attacking them recently. As we wrote this out months ago, there were identical twins guarding the door in three-piece suits and holding Tommy guns. They informed the group that so long as their weapons remain holstered, there wouldn't be any issues. They entered and eventually got their meeting with the boss. Now, I do need to note that I did this on the fly because I forgot to take my notes from the first act with me, so I called the boss Mr. Norris. Regardless, the group met with him in the conference room to discuss who's handling the production and where they might find them. Mr. Norris made it very clear that that type of information is the type he could only share with a customer, so the group began to discuss the cost of buying a single synth. During that conversation, Scott mentioned casually that the group's had multiple run-ins with synths recently, and when that came up, Norris's demeanor changed, and it became obvious they weren't going to get anything out of him. I was actually getting ready to have him call for security, but before I could even get the words out of my mouth, Jim announced that his Mr. Gutsy was shooting Mr. Norris in the head. Needless to say, that took me rather off guard, but he made the rolls, so Mr. Norris fell over dead. But of course, the sound of the laser fire did draw in security, and the synth shot through the glass window looking into the hallway. The group dispensed of them in short order, then attempted to exit through the front door. They opened it, saw a huge batch of synths headed their way, then pulled the old Three Stooges bit of quickly closing the door and beating feet the other way. Jim did what is now called as the Kool-Aid Protocol, which allows for him to bust through the wall to get him outside. And with that done, the group ran like the wind to the south and eventually lost the pursuing synths. They decided at that point to circle back to iRobotics and see what happened next. What happened next was a group of a dozen Garson tactical personnel taking computers out of the building and heading to the north. So the group followed them at a distance to see where they were headed. Now, I never considered the possibility of this happening, so I started working off the cuff, and that comes into play as we move along. I had the Garson guys take the computers to Tucker Malloy's house in Maplewood and went through the full description of what was going on. The group started talking about calling Max's character in. Max wasn't playing in this session, by the way. And have him bring the mini-nuke so they could blow up the house, which they assumed to be Longsworth's, or as they call him, Colonel Sanders. This is where I had one of the cop bots drop by and inquire about what they were doing. They explained, and the bot informed them that so long as they weren't doing anything illegal on the street, what they were doing wasn't his business. He also informed them that the house was Tucker Malloy's, and that altered the group's plan. They asked the bot about who might be building synths, and he informed them about the factory in Brentwood, which we wrote up a couple of weeks ago, and provided them with the directions to get there. 
Around that time, Max arrived with the nuke and his missiles and his launchers. The rest of the group took those and told Max to keep an eye on the building and let them know if anyone enters or leaves. The group headed for the factory, and when they got there, I laid out the area just as we set it up. The group spent a few moments discussing how they wanted to handle dropping the nuke, Then all the group, except for Jim, started running to the west so they could get as far away from the shockwave of the blast as possible. Jim then used his jets to get himself up high enough to be able to drop the nuke, then glide down and continue to haul his metal tail away. The bomb hit as expected and blew up the building. I mean, trust me, 21 dice of damage is going to basically destroy a building. However, it did occur to me that there's a lot of stuff in there that's powered with fusion tech, which means that when the building starts to blow up, so will the fusion reactors, which meant that there was another big explosion, and I noted that that blast blew big chunks of concrete from the street all over the place. The group did manage to get themselves out of range and then worked their way out of what would be considered to be the radiation area and presumably were headed back towards their base of operations. That's where we left off, and when we pick up on the first Saturday in September, the campaign's going to look a lot different than the way we wrote it up. But that's for later. We'll go ahead and wrap up the first show for this week. Up next, we're going to get our build moving along to the end of the second act. In the meanwhile, if you want to check out our other podcast, Role Playing History is available. This week, we're deep diving the Planescape setting for D&D, and if you've never played it, you're going to find it very interesting. That's episode one. The Birthright setting for D&D is episode two. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's campaign build-along is a production of Bad GM Productions. You can follow us all over social media. I've listed them all in the notes for this episode, or you can find it from our website, badgmproductions.next. Up next, we see what else we can get our group into, and I can assure you we've just started to scratch the surface of the trouble they're about to get in. So take a break if you want, check out Role Playing History, or just hit the next episode if you're ready. Until then, I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.